This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 25th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baben, Deputy Editor. Last week, we talked about how to treat patients who have COVID-19. And my takeaway from that was that there's plenty of supportive care that we can offer, but for the moment, there's little in the way of proven specific therapies. But what do we know about preventing disease? Perhaps today we can talk about practical measures. How can we avoid transmitting disease in clinical settings? And how can we help avoid infections in healthcare workers? I want to start with an article we published in the New England Journal last week. It described a laboratory study of viral persistence on various surfaces. So what did we learn from that and what are the implications? Well, if I may start, Lindsay, I think we learned that infectious virus can persist for a decent amount of time, at least under the conditions that were tested in the manuscript. The implications of that are a little bit complicated because it's not entirely clear how much transmission occurs from surfaces. There was also some discussion about survival in aerosols, but aerosols may not be the primary mode of transmission. It seems more likely that droplets are important, and survival in droplets is less of an issue because droplets do not remain airborne for that long. Eric, I, mean, I think those are important implications. I mean, my take on the piece, there were two observations that resonated with me. One in this artificial laboratory model, one could see persistence in different items in the environment, cardboard, plastic, for a day or two with a logarithmic decay in the virus. The other observation is that SARS-1, the cause of SARS 18 years ago, and SARS-2, the current pathogen in COVID-19 disease, seem to largely behave the same way in the environment which is encouraging in that we were able to successfully control SARS-1 18 years ago. However, the transmission and shedding of SARS-2 may be somewhat different. That requires us to think about careful environmental decontamination in the setting of active infection. I think it's important in that regard to think about how these two viruses differ. As viruses, they're very similar. So the physical chemistry of the virion, the actual particle, is not surprisingly not all that different. And the mode of transmission, at least the mode of becoming infected via the same receptor, is also similar. But the diseases are different, and therefore, because how the host transmits virus, how ill they are and what tissues become infected, are very important in transmission. So therefore, even these two similar viruses using the same receptor can certainly have different transmission dynamics. Eric, I agree that the biology of these viruses are different, and that's very important to take into consideration. And we know that SARS-2, the current cause of COVID-19, can be detected in orpharyngeal nasal mucosa at high titer in some patients prior to illness and even in those who don't become ill. This is an important difference with SARS-CoV-1 or the cause of SARS 18 years ago when amplification in the respiratory mucosa was largely in the lower airways and largely developed after significant clinical illness of several days. And these differences are being studied and defined and will inform our infection control practices, which have been changing rapidly over the last month and has frustrated all of us. But it's very important as new data emerge that we adopt our practices appropriate for the science that support them. 
So what are the practical approaches to avoiding transmission from surfaces? I think it's important to keep in mind how important surfaces are. But let's start with what those practical approaches are. Certainly, one of them is cleaning. And we know that a number of agents are viricidal. They will kill viruses on surfaces. Okay, I know you can't kill a virus, but they will inactivate them so they are no longer transmissible. Because SARS coronavirus 2 is an enveloped virus, it has a lipid coat, it's relatively easy to disrupt that. As soon as that membrane is disrupted, the virus is no longer infectious. The question, I think, is how important that is. Certainly in the hospital setting, where viral titers can get very high, it is very important. How important it is on other surfaces like clothing and such is not as clear. It does appear that most transmission can be accounted for by close association of people, which probably implies droplet transmission rather than fomite transmission. Is it possible that it's on fomites? It's possible. There's subsequent inoculation of mucosal surfaces. But I think there's been a lot of concern over more casual interactions with fomites, whether they're metal coins where we know the virus can persist or cardboard boxes that get shipped. And we don't really see many cases of these unusual transmission patterns, suggesting that it may not be so vital. I agree, Eric. I think what's important is for us to delineate what may be theoretically possible and what is practical in terms of really driving this epidemic. And I think the data suggesting survival on fomites is important to incorporate into our practice. I suspect, as you do, that routine cleansing with routine cleaners largely inactivate and diminish this risk. The real driver, I think, is likely individuals who are infected don't necessarily know they're infected and then have close contact with others. And that requires a different strategy than just cleaning the environment in terms of rapid ways to identify who's potentially infectious yet not symptomatic, as those individuals likely amplify virus and shed it at very high levels. Now, I should say that there are guidelines out there that heavily emphasize fomite transmission. Um, For example, our colleague, Julie Inglefinger, gave us a copy of the recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics for healthcare workers. What happens when you go home to try to not transmit virus? And their recommendations are heavy on how to keep clean and how to clean clothes and shoes and everything that you wore to the hospital. Probably, though, honestly, the biggest threat is you. If you become infected, then you're very likely to transmit it to your close contacts, probably by droplets, rather than your clothing. That hasn't meant, though, that my wife hasn't made me take off all my clothes and throw them in the washing machine and shower as soon as I come home. And I don't mean to diminish the importance of our barrier precautions and infection control precautions. And those are to diminish the droplet and other types of transmission, which is very important, as well as you're doing your laundry regularly. So if droplets are the most likely source of transmission, what's the current situation in hospitals and other healthcare facilities? How are they preventing exposure? So we're in a time of transition right now because of the relative shortage of PPE. I think that if PPE were infinitely available, if the supplies were vastly better than they are right now, 
that we would see them used much more heavily. But a lot of the infection control guidelines that are out there right now take into account conservation of these rather scarce resources. Certainly, the recommendations for infection control vary from hospital to hospital, but in general, clearly when caring directly for patients with known COVID-19, then several precautions come into play, including contact precautions, droplet precautions, and eye protection. And oftentimes, the recommendation for wearing N95 masks if they're available. I will say that both Lindsay and I have relatives working at hospitals in New York City where there's a tremendous scarcity who don't have availability of masks and eye protection and are doing high-risk procedures without it. And it's very frightening and discouraging that this is going on. We can't blame the healthcare providers who are really trying their best to take care of patients, but it's a very, very difficult situation. I think that, as Eric mentioned, protecting mucosal surfaces from being inoculated is very important when one is in a high-risk or a high-exposure environment, such as caring for patients with COVID-19. What I think is very important in this process is having testing so we know who is infectious and who isn't, who's infected and who's not infected, as this will allow us to properly utilize our PPE which is a critical resource in setting caring for patients, particularly in large volume. But the principles are to protect the mucosal services from contact with the pathogen. I think there's a good parallel with the Ebola outbreak. Ebola is a highly transmissible pathogen, so I don't mean to make any equivalence there. It's so easily transmitted that without these extreme measures in PPE and gowning and donning equipment, transmission can occur very easily. However, what is comparable is that when people present to Ebola treatment facilities, they're considered to be high-risk individuals even before they're diagnosed. If we had the resources, we would likely be doing the same thing in hospitals now in areas where COVID-19 is common. We don't, and we're not able to do that. We don't have the testing, so we don't know if they're infected. Oftentimes, the turnaround times for testing is still very long, and We don't have the PPE. So we're not where we need to be yet. I think that, Eric, as you mentioned, patients presenting and under suspicion for COVID-19, however low, the ability to rapidly distinguish if they're infected or not is a critically important element to create rational treatment pathways and infection control processes. And hopefully that will be made easier as we have more capacity for testing and also as we have more PPE to be able to protect our healthcare workers. But as you say, there still aren't enough tests available to assess all patients, never mind staff and visitors to healthcare facilities. In the absence of adequate testing and in the absence of adequate supplies of PPE, what can healthcare facilities do to help limit the spread of this disease? What's happening today? Steve, I think that the answer to that varies depending on where you are. In areas where disease is very common, like New York City right now, at least as of the time that we're recording this, there are not adequate PPE. And in fact, there aren't adequate resources altogether. And it's getting very close to the point where there won't be adequate rooms and other sorts of equipment to care for patients. This is not an optimal situation.
there's no good answer for healthcare providers in New York right now, although I understand things are likely to improve over the next several days and certainly weeks. In areas where we have a little more time to prepare, it's extremely important to be thinking through the kinds of policies that you need to implement. Those will change. They'll change on a likely daily basis as we learn more and as the availability of resources becomes better. But if you are working at a hospital which has seen very little disease, you should be very prepared right now for what happens when the numbers of cases increase dramatically. And I think that, Eric, as you allude to, it depends on the burden of disease. When you have only a few cases in your city, you can and should have different policies than when you have widespread community transmission, which obviously means you have substantial numbers of ill patients in your healthcare facilities. And once you have that, then one has to both treat the community interactions as well as the hospital interactions with appropriate caution, social distancing, being extra careful with wearing masks and uh, washing hands because there is more widespread transmission. And one has to remember that even in the nosocomial environment, there can be community-like transmission as visitors and healthcare workers who feel well may be infected, and therefore one has to be vigilant. And this is related to the burden of transmission going on in your locale that will then be reflected in what is going on in your healthcare center. This will sound a little bit self-serving, but it's important that we take care of patients. It's important that everyone have access to health care. But a key part of that is protecting the healthcare workers who are caring for these patients. They're a precious resource. We don't have a huge excess number of healthcare workers. And in fact, a number of people have been taken out of the system because either they're being quarantined for exposure or because they have become ill themselves. And I think that we really need to take care of these people. They are putting themselves at risk and providing an important service that's irreplaceable. So both from a practical and an ethical standpoint, we should be doing better. Protecting the healthcare workforce is paramount. I couldn't agree with you more. And the workforce also wants to protect their families, which really impacts their ability to be effective in their jobs. And we as a community must do everything we can to protect this resource. I could not agree with you more. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.